Blog Talk Radio. You've just connected with Parkinson's Recovery. This is Robert Rogers. If you're looking for a place where you can get some great ideas for what you can do to get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's, you have come to the right place. This particular day is the day of the new airing of the new time for the weekly Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network show. We're now on at 3 p.m. Wednesdays. Uh, Pacific time, and that's actually 6 p.m. Eastern time. Many people told me that they couldn't listen because it was during the day, so now we're airing actually in the evening. My guest today is John Bowman, who is a proud person with Parkinson's. John is also an adjunct professor at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. He is an attorney and professional inspirational speaker, and he actually is going to be presenting a talk, Reclaiming Positive, the Power of Positive, as the closing call to action at the Living Well with Parkinson's Symposium in Louisville, Kentucky, November the 15th, 2010. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm honored that you asked me to be on the show. I think... You do some excellent work, and I think the more discussion that comes about regarding Parkinson's, the better uh, we'll be. I was, uh, the Parkinson's Disease Foundation was nice enough to invite me to New Jersey for four days a couple weeks ago, and they brought in uh, many doctors and movement disorder specialists, and it was for clinical trial advocacy. Uh, we stayed in a wonderful place. There were about 40 people with Parkinson's. Uh, the, the people that, that have taken the, the bull by the horns, the people that, that are on the forefront of, of, of looking at Parkinson's and being positive and, and finding ways instead of finding excuses. Uh, and the staff there at the Parkinson's Disease Foundation out of New York City put on a pr- tremendous program. And what, what, what the, well, the learnings that I had from there were just phenomenal. And, um, so I'm following it up by, by spending as much time as I can speaking to groups like the one in Louisville, November 15th. Awesome. If you'd like to right now, as you're listening to the show, learn more about John Bowman and his story and his history, you can visit his website, and that address is www.theinspiringadvice.com. Esquire.com. So that's spelled V T H E, inspiring, I N S P I R I N G, Esquire, E S Q U I R E.com. John, tell us some about your experience with the symptoms of Parkinson's. Yes, well, the first symptom that I had of Parkinson's was um, I, I played a lot of golf and I couldn't putt anymore. I would try to putt, and I thought I had the yips or whatever mental issue there was with putting. I would putt righty, and the, the ball would go a different direction almost. And my hand would shake, and you can't putt with a shaking hand. So my the pro at the golf course said, well, let's, let's turn you around and putt lefty. So I started putting lefty, but I still thought it was relatively strange that that was happening. The next thing that happened to me was I was an avid softball player. I um, I played in the Texas State Championship softball team as a shortstop, uh, and I wanted to play softball my entire life. I really enjoyed the sport. 
Uh, I played shortstop as well as left field. And um, started to, during games, when I was warming up, I people thought I was I was messing around because I would throw it and get halfway there, or I'd throw it over their heads over and over again. And I thought I, you know, you've seen major league ball players um, who who mentally couldn't play the game anymore. A second baseman that couldn't throw to first from second, a catcher who had to roll it to the pitcher, you know, that sort of a that sort of a mental block. So I thought I had that, and and that disturbed me greatly. Um, what happened next was I was playing soccer and I and I broke my thumb and I had a cast put on my hand and so for for a few month for six weeks my cast held, uh, kind of weighed my right hand down and so my hand didn't swing so I thought when they took the cast off the reason that my hand didn't swing was because of the the um, the cast being on it for so long. Those of you out there with Parkinson's, you understand what I'm getting at because those are clear symptoms of Parkinson's. Right hand doesn't um, swing or left hand, whichever the arm doesn't swing. The um, the hand shakes, you know, when, you, when you're in a stressful situation like putting on a golf course and um, you lose, lose certain motor skills. So all those things came together and I decided to go and see a neurologist and that's when I found out that I had Parkinson's. And how long ago was that? That was probably in nineteen no two thousand and um, one or two. Um, a lot of the symptoms were happening beforehand, and, and those of you again with Parkinson's out there, you recognize the fact that you're probably undiagnosed for quite some time. I actually went to see the surgeon that that fixed my thumb and asked him why my hand was shaking. Did he cut a nerve or something? And he he said no, and didn't have the the uh, awareness uh, of a of a general practitioner of sorts to be able to tell me that you need to go see a neurologist. He just sent me on my way. He said, "I know I didn't cut a nerve. It can't be nerve issue. It's something else." And didn't say, "Why don't you go see a neurologist?" Which would have been a good follow up. So you finally got the diagnosis. What happened then? Well, when I went in. Um, I walked into the doctor's office, and there were a couple other things that happened that I just want to mention. I made the decision to argue before the Seventh Circuit in Chicago, that's the Federal Court of Appeals, right below the Supreme Court. I was working as a general counsel of a publicly held company, one that was on the on the on the uh, stock exchange. And normally, general counsels of companies don't actually, so to speak, do anything on the front lines. But I knew this case so well, and I felt so comfortable arguing before the Seventh Circuit, that I went and did it to save the, the expense. This is Chicago, 9 a.m. in the morning. I argued the case. Uh, the other side went first. I tried to take notes. I could not read my notes. My handwriting was so illegible. It's a stressful situation, and handwriting is affected as well. I went up to do my argument without any notes at this point on what my opponent had said. I had a rough time with the argument. Got back to my hotel room around 10 o'clock in the morning. Again, Chicago in January. Took off my suit jacket, and my entire shirt was soaking wet from perspiration, from the from my hand my hands down to the bottom of my shirt. And I recognized that there was something wrong there. So that's that was the real impetus for me to say, you know, let me go see somebody and find out what this is about. So I walked in, and the the, the um, doctor looked at me and said, 
you have Parkinson's. And I said, how can you say that? You haven't given me any tests, no blood test, no urine test, no no exercise, no no physical test, no banging on the knee with a little hammer, nothing like that. And she said, I saw your application you know, when you filled it out for, for, the, uh, for admission to my office, and it can hardly read your handwriting, and it gets smaller as he goes. You have no expression in your face. You don't blink. Your right arm doesn't swing. Uh, your hand is shaking. You have Parkinson's. She said, I'll send you for an uh, uh, MRI of your, of your brain, but the only real way to find out is an autopsy. Well, let me tell you something. I chose against that. I opted against the <laughs> autopsy. Right. I made the decision that that wasn't something I wanted to do. You're not doing so, that. <laughs> right. Uh, so I started taking medicine, and, and it, it worked, it, 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 uh, which, which un- unfortunately means I have, I have Parkinson's. Um, and I've had to live with it since. I remember I, I, it almost was white light. It, I've been in um, a bus accident where the bus tipped over, and the, what I remember from the accident was white light where everything was, was in, in uh, slow motion and white light. Well, I experienced that again when, when she told me this. I was, I was in shock. I was stunned. I went in the bathroom and threw water on my face and said, you know, welcome to your new reality. Um, the one positive part about it is I believe I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth. Excuse me, Lou Gehrig. But um, it, it's, it's, it would be right up my alley to uh, be diagnosed with a, uh, a non-curable, an incurable disease, progressive incurable disease, and then they find a cure. Interesting. Are you then taking cinnamon and other medications as well, or just the cinnamon? I do. I um, my doctor is Dr. Irene Litvan. She's a wonderful doctor, movement disorder specialist, well known. She's taken a personal interest in me. I've taken a personal interest in her. Uh, she's been over my house. We've been out to dinner. She's a wonderful person. Uh, when she she presented in Washington uh, in. 2000 and I believe it was four uh, for the World Parkinson's Congress, the first one. My parents from Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, I talk about love, spent, drove up to Washington to, to, so I wouldn't be alone at this conference. Um, when she spoke there, I went down there and my parents got to meet her and they felt a lot more comfortable. It's got to be tough for parents. It's got to be tough for parents of someone who has uh, uh, Parkinson's or MS or any other sort of uh, serious illness uh, to, to watch their children. I mean, it's tough enough to have a child die. I couldn't imagine it. I've, I've you know, I've had to deal with um, my daughter having serious mental, uh, serious physical issues, uh, medical issues, um, and you know, I just that's got to be the worst thing in the world. So they were they it gave them a lot of comfort that they came and found out a lot of information at the World Parkinson's Congress. What incredible parents you have. This is a call-in show, so for those of you who are listening through your computers or on the telephone, you can call the following toll-free number 877 877- 5900733 
and connect directly with John and ask him whatever questions you'd like to ask him. And until you call in and signal that you'd like to be able to talk with him, I get to ask John all the questions that I want to ask him. It's been then since 2002. How would you describe the evolution of your life over that period of time? Are you living a life now that for you is fuller than it was back in 2002 or not? That's an interesting question. Um, I believe that every year of my life has been better than the last, and I don't, I, I don't take take away any any of the years that I've that I that I had Parkinson's. There's still every year has been better than the last. 2010 was better than 2009, so so on back. Um, that's kind of the the attitude I've had. Um, you learn a lot when you go through experiences like this. Um, when you talk about full fullness, um, when you when you're diagnosed, you know, like I said, I'm a proud person with Parkinson's. What's interesting about being proud of something is that you you can take the good out of it and see the good in it, and it, it basically takes your blinders off and gives you a bigger perspective of things. Um, I'm not basically saying you know this could be my last year of of life that sort of thing. Um, what I'm basically saying is. I need to continue doing what I've always done, which is be be as outgoing and as fun-loving and as enjoyable and find wonder in things that I that I've that I've always done. Now, to tell you the truth, I did do something maybe that I wouldn't have done for a couple of years. But on the, on second thought, I, I'm 50 years old now, and I wouldn't want to wait much longer. I've always wanted to jump out of a plane. I've always wanted to skydive. And I didn't do it when I was 20 years old because my mother wouldn't let me. <laughs> she, she told me that she'd be very upset. And Your mother so this loves time you. I didn't. She, doesn't, she doesn't want you jumping out of a plane. <laughs> I had my whole life ahead of me. You know, Not to say I don't have my whole life ahead of me now, but in some respects I'm a little bit older. I didn't tell her that I did it until afterward. And it was it was a wild experience. I was petrified. I was I was so scared. We went up to 5,000 feet, and I said, well, are we ready? And they said, no, we've got to go up to 10,000 feet. So we circle and circle and circle going up. And then he said, you have to wait 10 seconds. It'll be about 10 seconds to pull the ripcord, and you've got, you're have got you going to be at 5,000 feet when you pull it. And um, when we jump out, you lose such orientation, and you're you're trying to right yourself, and, and it's, it's the speed of the wind and the speed of your fall, et cetera, et cetera. I looked at my altimeter, and I was at 5,500 feet I thought in a second and a half, so I pulled oh, the ripcord. Wow. You know, it was. Yeah. You know, they told me afterward that it would things would slow down in my brain, and I would realize that it was ten seconds. There's no way it was ten seconds. There's <laughs> it no was way. A second and a half, right? <laughs> it was a second and a half. Now, what was cool about it was I had faith. I had faith in my in my uh, tandem partner, the instructor. He's only had to pull the emergency cord twice in ten years. Has over a thousand jumps. And that's one of the things, you know, that, that I, I definitely have. I have faith in the people that, that I'm depending upon, like him, like my doctors. I have faith in them. If I didn't have faith in them, I'd go find somebody else. But I was, you know, I, I spent the time in making sure I, I had good doctors. I heard a great expression at the clinical uh, trial advocacy course, and that is once you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one. Think about that. We're like snowflakes. Everyone's different. 
I have progressed very slowly, and I've seen others that progress slowly. At the Institute, there was one person who was 28 years old, has had it for four years, and is in advanced stages, well beyond where I am. Everyone's genetic makeup is different. Everyone's background experiences, everyone's environment is different. Everyone's attitude about it is different. So, and you know, she had a great attitude about it. She was, she was a bubbly, effervescent, wonderful girl, woman, girl. Um, but you know, that hasn't been enough for her to to slow the progression. But everyone progresses at a different rate, and um, that's that's my goal is to progress at the slowest rate possible. And a lot of the things you discuss in your in your website and in your um, in your talk radio show. Uh, to discuss that, the things that you can do to, to slow the progression. And I've been doing everything I possibly can. What are some of the things that you've been doing, some of the therapies or modalities that you find found have been useful? Well, the number one thing by far, and it takes discipline to do this, it takes carving out time each day, it takes, you know, you just making it, making it happen. As they say in Nike, just do it. You've got to exercise. There is some sort of chemical that's that's released in the brain, released in the body, that 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 slows the progression. I'm I'm absolutely convinced of it. Whether it's aerobic one day or lifting weights another day or whatever you want to do, swimming in a pool, uh, doing water aerobics, tai chi, karate, doesn't matter. Maybe a variety of stuff. Yoga, doesn't matter. Exercise. And I'm not going to just skip over that and go to the next one. I'm going to talk about that. Exercise, exercise, exercise. They say the three biggest things in real estate are location, location, location. Well, it's exercise, exercise, exercise. If you don't do anything else, get your heart rate going. Get your, get your body sweating, perspiring. You know, Get those toxics out of your body. Spend the time, ride a bike. Uh, do whatever you can. Some people in more advanced stages have to do the walker. Fine, do the walker. You know, just do whatever it takes. Um, affection, lots of affection. That's that's really helpful. Not really, but what the heck, it's enjoyable. Um, I, I don't think it has any therapeutic value, but it does to me. Yeah. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I always throw that in when I do my talks. Um, <laughs> make a difference. Make a difference. You know, you notice I haven't said drugs yet. I haven't said prescriptions yet. I haven't said supplements. I haven't said vitamins. I haven't said coenzyme Q10. Those are all good, and we can talk about those. But make a difference. Stay sharp. You know, do whatever your strengths are. Look, take a look at your, take an honest assessment of yourself. Like I mentioned, I do Learn Success Today, a program, a 12-step program that goes through the 12 steps in order of what, what people can do to be successful. And the first one is to an honest self-assessment. And that's really critically important. Find out what your strengths are. What are your interests? And then envision is the second step. And I won't go beyond that right now. Envision. Not vision, but end vision. I like to, I like to break it up into end-vision. Um, figure out what your end vision is. What do you, what do you envision yourself? Uh, two, three years ago, I um, was living in a house I didn't want to live live in. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the friends that I, I envisioned that I would have. Um, and I basically envisioned myself 
in a in a house in the woods and I smelt it, I felt it. I, it was so real to me that it had to happen. And that's what I where I live today. I live in a five acres in the woods on a beautiful house, hardwood floors, travertine, but you know, it's just a, a great uh place to 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 be to exist. Um but I envisioned it. Well, envision what you want to make with your life. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we've all hold, heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Okay. Do you know that Alfred Nobel's brother passed away, and there was a mix-up with the newspaper, and the newspaper, whether it was a national newspaper or a local newspaper, published his obituary. People they have obituaries ready to go for famous people. Published the wrong obituary, and he read his own obituary years before he was he he had passed away. And it said it talked about how he invented dynamite. A lot of people don't know he invented dynamite, and it talked about how many people were have been killed by dynamite, and how much war has been waged with dynamite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he looked at that and said, "Oh my goodness, this is what I'm going to be remembered for." So he established the Nobel Peace Prize. So when they finally did his obituary, he was you know they might, maybe they mentioned dynamite, but we know what the most predominant part of that would be. Yeah. So it's not just a legacy thing. Look at where you want to be. What you know? For me, I was a all at the same time I was looking at houses or, or where I lived. Uh, I was looking at my career. I was the top attorney in a. On uh, formerly NASDAQ listed company. Uh, I was spending all my time and energy reading contracts, making money for the company. Nothing wrong with that. Put Puts roof over people's heads, employees' heads, puts food on their table. The fact that we were successful in, in growing from 900 employees to 1,500 employees gave 600 people the chance to work. I, 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 I take great pride in that. I'm honored by that. But it really wasn't making this, the, the impact that I wanted to make. So I made the very difficult decision, especially since I wasn't walking into a situation that had health care, and walked away from that job in order to um, teach more at University of Louisville, um, do a radio show for a period of time, and um, you know, w- work on inspirational speaking, set up um, engagements, Talk about Parkinson's. Talk about my daughter's cerebral palsy and her medical issues, um, and try to reach people. Um, I, you know, I enjoy being on stage, but more importantly, I think I have a message that people need to hear about positive, about perspective. About, you know, I mean, think about this. Think about this. This this became so clear to me at this conference in New Jersey. What is a placebo? What is a placebo? Why do they have to have a control group where they give the same medicine, placebo, to someone that has no, it's neutral, it's just water, it's, it's, it's got no effect? Because people, when they, take, when they participate in a study and they take something that they think could, could help them, they know it's a double-blind study. They know that, they're not gonna, that they're, half of the people are not taking the, uh, the medicine, but they get improvement out of that too. It's a documented fact. Well... What else is the placebo effect other than positive thinking? Thinking you're going to get better. Thinking you're going to do better. And that's my biggest message, positive perspective. 
positive perspective, you know. You've made some incredible changes in your life uh, since being diagnosed with the symptoms of Parkinson's. How have you been able to maintain such a positive attitude over these past eight years? Well, um, one one way is to keep perspective. I'll give you a perfect example. I love the movie Overboard, not because I love Goldie Hawn or maybe even Kurt Russell um, or the storyline, but w- what was the message of that story? And there's, there's a great there's a great scene with uh, the butler. I think it was Roddy McDowell was the actor, and he's a pretty famous actor. Why did he take the the role of the butler on this yacht that Goldie Hawn was on? And I think there's a reason. I think it was because of one line that he really, really liked, and, she, and he was he was so impressed by the by the script that he wanted to utter this line. The story goes, she was uh, this rich person who is never satisfied with anything on a yacht, and Kurt Russell, very poor, with f- f- four kids, I think three or four kids, uh, no 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 mother around. Um, he she she hired him to put in a uh, closet, shoe closet. And she ends up uh, not liking the job he did and threw his tools overboard, which is what he absolutely needed. And so he he goes back to where he lives. And she unfortunately falls out off the boat and hits her head and she has amnesia. And they're trying to find out who she is. And she, he looks at the, he's watching the news and she comes up in the news and he says, that's the woman that, that owes me the cost of my um, toolbox so he went and he 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 pretended that he was she was his wife and this went on for quite some time and she he tried to make sure that she um, worked off without knowing it worked off by cleaning the house and cooking the meals and whatever she was doing when she finally didn't have amnesia anymore and realized where she was she went back to the yard and she was kind of in limbo she was between worlds um, she was still in the world of, of everyday person, but not in the ritzy, ritzy glitzy world. So she's in the in the galley and she's doing shots of tequila with the with the crew, which is pretty interesting. And she, the crew leaves, and it's just her and the butler. And she says, "Was I terrible?" And he says, "I don't remember what his name was, but she says, I've lost my." Diamond earrings somewhere between 51st and 53rd Street. Go find them. <laughs> and she looks at him with, with these puppy dog eyes and says, you know, what am I going to do? And he, he his face softens. And he says to her, Madam, you've had the unique experience. No, Madam, we all go through life with blinders on. You've had the unique experience of having yours taken off for a short period of time. What you do with that information is entirely up to you. That's the line. In a sense, I've had my blinders taken off for a period of time. I see the world in a different way. And what I see is I need to, I need to make my legacy. I need to stay positive for, my, for myself, first and foremost, for my family, uh, and... You know, see the see the positive stuff in all this, and there is positive. Um, I I maybe taste food a little bit better. 
I have no idea how long the quality of life will stay. Like I said, I'm a snowflake. It could start accelerating progression when dopamine starts leaving my, my starts being more and more depleted, or I could stay this way for 30 or 40 years. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna opt for the 30 to 40 years. It's pretty clear you have been an exerciser avidly over your entire life with all of the different sports that you mentioned. When you began to get uh, uh, serious about your exercise regimen after the diagnosis with the symptoms of Parkinson's, is there any particular exercise that you've been drawn to? Absolutely. I love my elliptical machine. It's actually a Nordic track, but it's not a Nordic track. It's just made by Nordic track because it doesn't wear on my knees. Uh, running uh, tends to, to be, be a lot rougher on the knees and joints. Uh, I'm in enough pain already from time to time without adding to that by having wear and tear on my, on my knee and joints. So the elliptical machine keeps my feet on, 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 on the, there's not a jostling of the knees, and I can get, it, get to a pretty high speed. And also, I love watching Law & Order. Criminal Intent, Special Victims Unit, the regular one, whichever one it is. So I'll watch an episode of Law and & Order, and uh, that's about an hour. So it puts, it makes me forget what I'm doing in exercising. So the elliptical oh. machine I, I absolutely love, uh, and I set it up so I can watch it on TV. Um, I also like bicycle riding. I've always enjoyed bicycle riding. Um, I don't run, as I mentioned, I lift lift weights, uh, you know, one or two times a week. Um, I'm I'm starting to look into yoga a little bit more because I like the stretching part of it. One of the things that I also do is I call it treat myself, but it's more like treatment. I uh, have massages. I go to a place called Massage Envy. It's a chain of massage uh, places. I think uh, that was the smartest franchise anyone ever came up with because it's very difficult other than when you go to a fancy hotel and it costs an arm and a leg. It's very difficult to find reputable massage places that aren't, you know, front for something else. Uh, Massage Envy gives you the security that this is a legit place. And you join uh, on a yearly yearly basis where you, you, you pay for one per month uh, and it's, it gives them the steady stream of income. So you have to sign up for a period of time, and you know it, it gives you the excuse or the opportunity or you know a reminder to do it at least once a month. So I, uh, and then they give you a discount if you do it more than once a month. So I'd recommend that to anybody to just you know use your, use the massage as a great treat for yourself. I mean, you, you think about it. You've got a you've got Parkinson's. <laughs> you might as well, you know, take advantage of of some things that that come up related to Parkinson's, and the need for massages is absolutely something that's important. What are the therapeutic suggestions would you make to somebody who currently experiences the symptoms of Parkinson's? Um, I would say coenzyme Q10 seems to work pretty well. Um, I love. Stress therapy, whatever type of stress therapy you can think of, Tai Chi, um, uh, yoga, whatever you know helps you with the, the uh, reduction of stress. That's so important, the reduction of stress. 
uh, sometimes it's not possible to do when you've got to support a family and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, stress comes from everywhere. But I, I know that if I don't reduce stress, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shorten my quality of life and it's going to shorten my life and, and my absolute life. So um, making sure that I stay as stress-free as possible through whatever mechanism there is is real important. You have an incredible speaking schedule, Ontario in January, Houston in April, Alabama in May. How do you handle all of that challenge without incurring significant stress? Well, um, people are, some people, a lot of people, most people, become stressed out about being before audiences. I went to Saskatchewan, Canada, to speak to the Saskatchewan Association of Rehabilitation Centers. And as we know, Canada is socialized medicine, so these are all supervisors of the state-run rehabilitation centers, so they have a bunch of employees. And uh, they, I don't think it's very highly paid. Uh, we were in a, we were in a, basically a basement of a, a, or a hotel conference room that was not inducive at all, had pillars all over the place. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, real set up well. And I came in the night before, and I spent some time. I walked into the the hotel lounge around 11 o'clock at night, and I said, I saw a table full of people, about 12 people, and I said, Are you from Sark? And they said yes. You know, and they they were very friendly. And I love Canadians. I love Canadians. This was in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Um, they were very friendly, and they said, yes. And one of them said, I'm the executive director. I said, I'm your closing keynote speaker. And she was like, oh, great, come sit down. And they were so friendly. And, and what they didn't realize was that I uh, remember everything. I remember everything. So, I, And I wasn't drinking. I mean, I had a beer, but I wasn't really drinking, and they had been there for a little while. So they told me a lot of stuff, and I, I kind of filed it away. And then I went to the seminar the next day, and I listened to the prior speakers, and I enjoyed listening to them. So when I went up and gave my talk, it ended up being an hour and 15 minutes, it blew them away. And not only did it blow them away, it blew me away. It was a gift that I gave to them and they gave to me. I talked about appreciation. I talked about cutting down trees. I talked about my daughter. I talked about my son. I talked about my relationship with my ex-wife talked about everything and at the end there were times that people were crying times that people were laughing hysterically times that people were serious you know we went through the whole spectrum of emotions together and they they said they'd never been a standing ovation before at, at a conference and it was an absolute standing ovation and it, it was it was it wasn't something that I gave to them it's something that they mutually gave to each other uh, they they asked a million questions. They wanted me to stay for another hour. I stayed for as long as I, uh, you know as long as I could, because one of the things about Parkinson's is it does take your energy. Uh, it ta- takes your. I'm fatigued a lot, so I need to always recharge my batteries, and that get, it it's, it drained me of energy, but it filled me up with energy at the, both at the same time, and that experience said to me. 
you, you know, a piano player has a gift. A sports figure has a gift. This is my gift. And that's what I need to do as many places as possible. Um, because the, the whole, the whole, I get so fired up with purpose and meaning and intensity that, you know, I, 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 it's not wear and tear on me. It's not fatiguing. It's not stressful. It's, it's fulfilling. It's an enlightening. It's an enriching. Now, afterward, I must sleep for 15 hours. <laughs> you know, I gotta go right to sleep. Um, because, you know, in that, in that case, I went for a walk around a, a beautiful lake to, to pull out some energy, get my energy. So I went for a real long walk and then I went to bed early. I had something to eat and went to bed early and woke up 15 hours later. So, um, I, I, you know, I love doing those talks and, um, I'm hoping I can make a living out of it. It would be a shame if, if, um, I, I do practice some law, family law. I do that to, to one, pay my bills, but two, I'm really involved in prevention of domestic violence against women. So I want to be able to help women get emergency protective orders and, you know, deal with the the emotional issues that go on with um, divorce and child custody issues and domestic violence. Um, so I, I want to do that, but that's more like, you know, a fulfilling fill-in, if, if, if you get my understanding, um, besides teaching at school. Right. Now, during the talks that you're giving, uh, talk more, if you could, for folks about what it is that you'll be talking about. Well, there's three groups that normally are in my audiences. There's the care receiver who obviously has the condition, illness, there's a caregiver, and there's two types of caregivers. There are professional caregivers, people who went into the profession for honorable reasons, or, in fact, nowadays, with the, the explosion of health care positions and the people living longer and going to assisted living in elderly care places, there may be some people that go into the profession not for the, the reason of wanting to be a health care provider, or health uh, caregiver, but because of the that's where the money is and that's where they can find a job. So for bo for both of those groups, they need they need some inspiration. Sometimes they're burned out. Sometimes they're they're um you know they're not as as it wasn't what what they thought it would be, and they need to hear from somebody about how what, how much they're appreciated and how being the last best friend to somebody. Is a, is a wonderful role, and, and how much how, how honored they should be, and how much they should cherish their position. Everyone needs a needs a you know, shot in the arm, uh, a, you know, a wake up call, perspective, whatever you want to call it. And then the family caregivers, which is a, cl a class of people that didn't sign up for the job. They probably had a full calendar to begin with. They had a full life, and all of a sudden. They're, they, by necessity or by choice, they're caregiving to an elderly parent or even a child who has a condition or illness. And they've got to put their lives on hold and they've got to take on a financial burden often. So they're, they're in a position where they're not always appreciated. Um, a, 
care, you know, and I try to give perspective to, to all three groups, the care receivers, the caregivers, professional caregivers, and the family caregivers, that, you know, care receivers have, are, are, they've been hit with a fastball in the, between the eyes. Um, they, they're not going to always be thankful. Uh, my best friend from college, um, Bradshaw, was his name, interesting name, Bradshaw, that's his full name. Bradford Shaw. Um, he passed away in January of uh, this year. And he had cancer. He was only 50 years old. And he he was not easy to live with the last few months. He lives with his parents. And I, I, um, I commend them because, you know, he's he's dealing with a lot. We talked a lot about the afterlife. We, uh, we spent, uh, fortunately... The last three years of his life, um, I was down in where he lived in Florida, often visiting my girlfriend. And um, so we got to spend some time together. Um, so, he, you know, he wasn't the easiest person to live with. He was in pain. He was in. He was dealing with the fact that his, his life was going to end. And did he have meaning in his life? And did he have, is anyone going to remember him? Well, Brad... You know, I'm talking about you on the radio, so you're remembered, my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and care receivers t- handle it differently. They don't always thank you for changing their your colostomy bag or whatever. They would be thanking you constantly. So just realize that you're appreciated and thank yous, thank you, thank you. And then professional caregivers um, don't always get thanked by the family members. Well, put yourself in their shoes. They're they're dealing with something that's pretty awful as well. They're going to lose a loved one eventually. Um, they've got to coordinate between siblings sometimes. Um, who's doing what? And there's going to be patent unfairness there. It's never going to be a fair th- situation. Someone either has more children, more responsibilities, or thinks they have more responsibilities. Uh, someone lives closer. Someone lives farther away. Someone likes to take on the role of caregiver. Someone doesn't. It gets into all sorts of issues, family-related issues in the social system that um, wears on people. So, you know, they're not going to be the first one to just reach out and thank you. You know, you have Parkinson's. Thanks for the diagnosis. It's not going to happen. So I give some perspective to all those things. And then um, that's the message. That's the message. That's one of the takeaways. I call them tangible takeaways is, is to is to know that you're appreciated. The other part of it is the positive outlook, the positive attitude. I haven't talked a lot about my daughter, and I think that maybe that's the, this is the point to discuss her. Uh, I am a caregiver, and I'm happily a caregiver for my 14-year-old daughter, um, because the alternative to being her caregiver would be her her um, would be her being deceased, and I don't want that. She was um, diagnosed with diaphragmatic hernia during an ultrasound. Now picture this. We're in the nurse's office. She's given an ultrasound. We're all happy. There's, she's pulling, putting a little ultrasound thing, uh, gelling it up and putting it over the, my ex-wife's belly. And we see it, and she's all happy, and she's looking at it and laughing with us. And then all of a sudden, she stops laughing. And she looks at the screen and she says, I have to get the doctor and nothing more and walks out of the room. 
wow. Doctor comes in. She she points out something in the ultrasound. We don't know what she's talking about. The doctor says, I don't see it. Points again, I don't see it. Points again and says, oh, now I see it. And I said, you know, could someone please fill me in? Yeah, what are you he saying? He said, well, we want, we wanted to be sure. He said, we wanted to be sure. It's a diaphragmatic hernia, which means that she doesn't have a diaphragm or there's a big hole in her diaphragm. What they saw was the stomach had moved up into the chest cavity so that there was no room for the lungs to develop. Oh. And you, know, you don't have, you know, you can't live without lungs. So we um, we dealt with that diagnosis and tried to you know, maintain the pregnancy. What we were told was there was a 40% chance of survival. And even if there is survival, there's, gonna, there's, a, there's all sorts of degrees of quality of life. I made the decision to go forward with the... Uh, situation and not terminate the pregnancy because I feel as though I'm a fighter and if my daughter it was my she was a girl if she's going to be if she's any any much of a fighter than I am if she's got my sense of spirit then we need to give her every opportunity my I understood the perspective of my ex-wife because she was thinking that you know she could she bear going through a funeral or attaching herself to a child and passes away after a number of days and the emotional strain on that and, and we talked about that and, and I basically, you know, it was real important to me that we give her a chance. She had to be five pounds or more to go on an ECMO machine. It's a heart it's a heart it's a machine that they put cannulas down the, the carotid artery in the throat and the carotid vein, right into the heart, and they pull out the blood, take out the CO two, oxygenate it and put it back in. So she's not using her lungs. She didn't have any lungs to use. So it's circulating constantly. And there are three at Cozier Children's Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, which is phenomenal that there's you know, that we have a hospital close by that and this ultrasound person basically saved her life because uh, often they don't see it and it's a surprise at birth. So she was taken six weeks early, um and was five pounds one ounce. If she was five pounds or less she wouldn't have been able to go on the ECMO machine. So she goes on the ECMO machine and there Unbelievably, there are two other ECMO babies uh, on the machines. One of them coming from Evansville, and unfortunately for her, actually it was a him, uh, they did not see it. The ultrasound person didn't see it. And uh, the trip from Evansville to Louisville was too much for the child, so the child didn't didn't survive. But the other baby did survive. Um, and if, in fact, if there were three babies on ECMO machine, which is extremely rare, then there wouldn't be anyone for Katie's or name to be on the ECMO machine. So Katie on I was born October 1st. My birthday is October 6th. She had her first operation over October 6th. I basically gave up all my birthday wishes for the rest of my life to her that she should survive. This the the doctor was an interesting guy, Sheldon Bond. I love Sheldon Bond. I love the name Sheldon. Just to throw in a little comedy, uh, a little lightheartedness. He um there was a movie called Harry Met Sally, and um, Billy Crystal is talking to Meg Ryan, and, and Meg Ryan's Billy Crystal is asking her about her um, sex life, and she says, "Yes, I had a great boyfriend named Sheldon," and he says, "Sheldon, Sheldon, Sheldon does your taxes. You need a root canal. Sheldon's your man." But great sex? I don't think so. 
So when I met Sheldon Bond, the first thing I thought about was that that scene. (laughs) And I'm almost laughing, and he's telling me my daughter's got a 40% chance of living, and I'm almost laughing. Inside, I'm hysterically laughing. Um, so whenever I see him, I, you know, I, I, you know, like spending time with him, but he wouldn't make eye contact and I'm a real reader of people. That's why I like to be an inspirational speaker. He wouldn't make eye contact. Um, the first time I met him and that bothered me greatly. And then this, after the first operation, he still wouldn't make eye contact. So I knew we weren't out of the woods that she had to have her digestive system realigned. Uh, she, she couldn't eat. So she was fed through a tube in her side, uh, a hole in her side and her stomach for the first two and a half years of her life. Um, so then I, uh, I'm getting in my car one day right outside the hospital and who stops his Mercedes, gets out of the car, double parking it, stopping traffic, walks up to me and looks at me right in the eye and shakes me in the hand. I knew it. I knew she was out of the woods. I knew that she was, she was going to be great, uh, just by, you know, him making eye contact. So, um, she's got cerebral palsy. A mild case, but she does have it. She she can't really play sports, and you know she sees me or saw me playing sports. Um, but she she joined her school's golf team. She, her she joined her school's archery team. She joined her school's girls basketball team. Now her goals are to learn how to dribble first, then how to shoot. Once she knows how to dribble, then maybe score a bucket in a basketball game. That's her goals, and I, I'm I'm just behind her 100%. I'm I'm so proud of her that she, she makes the effort that she 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 doesn't let things stop her, and that's an inspiration for me that that she she is so um, unflappable that I draw from that in my uh, dealing with Parkinson's. You have indeed been through stressful times in your life. That then preceded the emergence of the symptoms of Parkinson's, it sounds like. If she's 14 now, is that right? Yes. Um, First, she had her medical issues. Then I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, The one thing that you know it's a little bit difficult to talk about and that's the the effect of negative people on your life i won't name names but i truly believe that when you're around people that are see the negative debbie downers uh, chicken little the sky is falling um all that sort of thing that you you you're affected by that whether it whether it wears down your immune system or whether it uh, actually triggers uh, condition or illness, I think that's the case. Uh, I don't have any studies to prove it. <laughs> I'm the study of one person, and I, I need to surround myself with upbeat, positive people, people that have energy, people that see the good, people that see the glass half full, um, and that's what I've done. I, I refrain from spending any time with negative people. And um, you know, that's that's real important to me. It's clearly made a huge difference to the quality of all of your life. You mentioned uh, uh, directing some suggestions for caretakers. 
What would be several strong recommendations you would make to an individual who has just been diagnosed with Parkinson's? Well, learn as much as you can about it. I went to a talk, and I'll I'll say this. This is pretty interesting because I I talked through out of both sides of my mouth. A wonderful assistant professor of neurology at Baylor did a um, talk. Her name is... I will screw up her name, but Yohei Jimenez Shahad. And she did a, a talk called Parkinson's Disease More Than a Shaking Palsy. And it was the most complete description of all the ways that Parkinson's affects your, your body and your life, from pain to rashes to um, depression to constipation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I noticed in there was, wow, I didn't realize that this this symptom that I have has to do with Parkinson's also. So it was it was great in the sense that it it, it told me that there was an explanation for the things that were going on, um, similar to finding out that it wasn't that I lost my ability to throw a softball. I, I have Parkinson's. I wasn't I didn't lose my ability to putt righty. I have Parkinson's. The problem with learning everything you can about Parkinson's is it's depressing. I mean, you're seeing into the future. If you get a newsletter from a from a foundation, they're looking for money. They're going to tell you the horror stories. In fact, they said, you know, one of the harshest things that happens with Parkinson's is your inability to swallow. I was I had to have a swallow test because I I felt like I was having problems swallowing and the test said, "No, you're not." And I, that was years ago. That was five, six, seven years ago. So one of the things I would not do is read the foundation newsletters. Have someone else screen the articles for you. Let them read the articles and then get you the stuff that's more positive and upbeat. Or if it if it's, talks about uh, coenzyme Q10 and studies that they're doing, and maybe you should take that. Or they're looking at creatine now. It doesn't seem like creatine has anything to do with it, but... You know, they're doing the studies. Um, I started taking Azelac before it was FDA approved. I was able to get the prescription in Canada. Um, so it's good to stay on the cutting edge. It's good to understand. It's good to reach out, get as much information as you can. But watch it because it's a double-edged sword. When you get all that information, it's depressing. Um, it, it can bring you down, and you can envision in the future, you know, that that's why I wouldn't go to support groups. Um, support groups, there seems to be a lot of um, negative energy there. Uh, you need to find a support group with positive energy. The great thing about this 40-person this seminar conference that we did in New Jersey is I have the names of 39 other people that are on the forefront of the Parkinson's issue uh, that are running support groups that are trying new new exercise techniques that are talking about yoga. They're just doing everything they can do. And that's my support group now. Now I'll stay in touch with those people. In fact, November 15th, when I do my talk in, um, in Louisville, two women from the Indianapolis um, Parkinson's Society are coming down to run my um, booth that's going to talk about clinical research, which I haven't really talked about very much, and I think I, I need to spend the time to talk about. 
clinical research and agreeing to be in a clinical study uh, has pros and cons. The pros are you might get access to a, something that, that improves your condition quicker than it would be if you if it waited to be FDA approved and everything else. The cons are that sometimes you delay, you sometimes you have to delay some sort of um, treatment regimen uh, that that might slow the progression of it. Uh, so you 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 you're being altruistic, you're being selfless, um, and you know that that can come into being. But clinical trials, the only way we're going to be able to find a cure, find ways to slow, find ways to stop progression of Parkinson's is to have clinical trials, have subjects volunteer for clinical trials. So I'm making a concerted effort now, even though I've been taking medicine for quite some time, to find clinical trials that I qualify for. Um, and it's, you know, it's real important that, that they do that because the only way they're going to be able to get to approval of new medicines, approval of new techniques, is to have clinical trials and they need volunteers for that. So that's real, real important, and the Parkinson's Disease Foundation in uh, New York City can help you with that if you want to contact them. They'll, uh, they'll spend the time and get you hooked up with the right place. PDTrials.com is a place, or .org, one of the two. So that's my pitch on clinical trials. So what you asked about was the newly diagnosed. If you're newly diagnosed, what do you do? Awareness. Get as much information as possible. Um, take action. Take action. Do whatever you think you can do to 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 benefit the Parkinson's movement. Uh, whether it's help look for a cure. I couldn't do that. I wasn't going to go back to school for 12 years and become a researcher. wasn't going to happen. Um, and accept. That doesn't mean accept your fate. What it means is accept. You know, that you have. To, for me, I hate taking medicine. But I've got to take my, the medicine that they give me. I'm definitely better shape. I took a, a weekend off about a month ago. And let me tell you something. I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck without my medicine. Uh, I try to take the minimal amount possible to, to maintain the lifestyle that, I've, that I'm in. But um, I'm a wreck. And I get, I get a lot of sleep. Don't feel bad about getting a lot of sleep. Uh, if, if you can... If you need the rest, you know, if you've always been an energetic person and slept six hours a night and now you have to sleep eight to ten hours a night or more, accept it. So awareness, action, acceptance. If you'd like to be able to ask a question of John or talk with him, you can call toll-free at the following number, 877-590-0733. He'd be delighted to connect with you. The actual topic that's promoted for your symposia in Louisville, Kentucky on November the 15th is power of positive. So why is positive so powerful? You know what? I have no idea what what I've, you know, when I say reclaim positive, which is the first part of that, uh, I, what I'm not saying is re recreate. What I'm not saying is um, you know, reform or anything else like that. When I say reclaim, I'm, I mean it very specifically because you had it at one time. Everybody was born positive. I don't think people are born negative. 
you're born, you're you're a wonder child, you're wonderful, you're you're something in the environment, you know, affects you. You need to reclaim that, reclaim the positive perspective that you had at one time, and make it a part of your life. And the power of positive is the the power, you know, when, when I speak, uh, not only do I bring tangible takeaways, uh, success skills, um, that sort of thing. What I do, do is also I want to model, this is what positive can do for you. Eight years with Parkinson's. I'm up here speaking. Sometimes my hand shakes. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I have a poker face. Sometimes I don't. Um, you know, but look at look at what what the the light that's coming out of my eyes, the the um, the enchantment that, that I try to bring, and you know, find find a way to be that way, because what's the alternative? The alternative is being negative, is being down, and you know, what's life all about in the big picture? But but enjoying it to the fullest as much, at all times. Um, so. That's kind of the power of positive, and the only the only way I can describe it is to is to tell stories about people that are positive. Um, one of the things that I did in order to um, to feel better, feel positive, since I was, as you mentioned, so into sports and really couldn't do much sports anymore. I guess I can still golf, but tennis is pretty much out. Can't serve. On the, it's too it's too too fine motor skills. Can't play softball. Can't throw. Um, I'm I decided to do something physical that would be fulfilling too. So I go to a discount to be to be named to be remain nameless. A discount store, um, and I bought a chainsaw. And I went out, and it was terrible. So I brought it back, went to another discount store, got another chainsaw. It was terrible. So I went to one of the specialty stores and got a steel, S-T-I-H-L. It was great. And I went out to my lot, the five-acre wooded lot that I was going to build a house on someday. And I spent almost every weekend for nine months cutting down trees that I needed to cut down for the to put the house and to put the driveway. And... I tell you what, I I made sure I did it safely. I had people come and instruct me on how to do it. But sometimes trees fall the way they want to fall, and these were pretty big trees. So a few times I got this chainsaw stuck, and if you've ever been involved in a situation where you cut down trees, it just naturally happens. And then you've got to use your ingenuity and figure out how to get it out without getting killed. And sometimes trees fall the wrong way. And I always think about, I was thinking about the Monty Python um, Holy Grail, where Sir Robin, um, the, the, the minstrels are singing, Sir Robin ran away, he turned his heels, he ran away. And I would run away, literally run away from a falling tree. <laughs> and then the hard work it took to cut them up, because once you fell them, that's not the end of the story. You've got to cut up these trees. And I cut down more than 50 trees. And had had it was excruciating, tiring, um, my arms were about to fall off, and I felt great. I was exhilarated. 
when I when I when I when I sit on the back porch of this house, the lanai, it's a screened-in porch, and look out on on the trees and all the, on the serenity, I think about the fact that I had something to do with this. I didn't just pay someone to do it. I put my time and effort in, and I I proved that I could still do physical activity. That life was not over just because I had Parkinson's. And that's the kind of uh, inspiring stories that I tell to people. You don't have to go out and cut down trees, but figure out what you need to do to to inspire yourself, to uh, to realize that you're still a whole person, that you're not a uh, half a person because you can't play softball anymore. Um, though I miss it. <laughs> I definitely miss it. I wish I could still play. You earlier mentioned there are 12 steps to success, uh, honest self-assessment, and to envision. Are there a couple of other steps to success that you would want for people with the symptoms of Parkinson's to be sure to know about? Well, let me go through all 12, and I'm I'm um, I'm going to be. I wrote a chapter for a book that, that that's going to be coming out at some point in the future. I've done two DVDs. I've done a DVD on Learn Success today, but it's it's a it's when there were nine principles. Uh, it's it's an earlier version. Um, it's about 90 minutes long, I guess, and it's it, it, you can get that through. You can contact me at John Bauman Esquire at Yahoo.com, and I'll get you a copy of it. I sell I sell them individually for twelve dollars each. The Learn Success today and the Learn Negotiation today, and then as a package for twenty dollars. Plus three dollars shipping and handling. Um, so I, I I sell those. Learn negotiation today is is uh, fifteen steps for effective negotiation. People negotiate all the time. Learn success today is nine principles. Uh, and I'm uh, this this what I'm talking about now is it's been a chapter in a book that should come out pretty soon. Um, so I, I've studied success just extensively. I've always spent time studying success. Uh, I didn't just become a professional speaker. I've been speaking my whole life. I've been going out to work-related situations, non-work-related. I spoke with the uh, transition team for the for the Louisville mayor years ago uh, to kind of inspire them. And what I, what I, what it boiled down to is I, I haven't found, until I put it together, one that is that gives you step by step, not a book where you read the book and say, "Wow, that's great! What a successful person! What am I supposed to do? What's tomorrow? Next week? Next month?" So I put together a 12-step program for Learn Success Today, and uh, that's my website as well, LearnSuccessToday.com. So the 12-step program tries to do it in sequential order, and tries to be very real with you. First thing you do, obviously, is you know when you're dealing with any issue, you you assess the situation, you gather the facts. Well, this is you as the issue. Gather the facts, do an honest self-assessment, find out what your weaknesses are, determine what your natural abilities are, what your natural talents are, where your intelligence lies, what are your strengths, what are your interests. Figure it all out, write it all down, ask people. Doesn't matter. Spend as much time as you need to do it. Then envision. Figure out what you want to do. Everyone loves the movie Rudy. Have you seen Rudy? Uh, no, I haven't. Football player from Notre Dame years ago. Um, he was of average football talent and average intelligence, and he wanted to go to Notre Dame and play on the football team. Just impossible. He ended up playing a couple of downs. Um, it's a great story. Everyone loves the underdog. It's overcoming obstacles, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he, 
I I I, I um, commend the guy, but he didn't use his abilities and talents. He had other abilities and talents. He was swimming down, I mean, upstream. He was running up a hill. There's something to be said for if you want to be successful, going with your strengths, playing to your strengths, running downhill, swimming downstream, that sort of thing. So once you've identified that and identified your interests, you figure out what's what's the best fit for you and are you interested in it? You know, what's, I'm not saying, you know, Tiger Woods has a great talent in, in golf. Um, but he, he, he took his talent to a new level through all of the, all of the other things he did to be successful. Uh, think about this. I'll tell you in a different way. What's an athlete or a person with some talent? The, probably the worst thing you could say about that person is they wasted their talent. And the best thing you say about someone is they use their talent to the fullest extent. Think about that. So someone with almost no talent might achieve a lot less than someone who wastes their talent. But you commend the person, you look kindly on the person, you, you, you're right. complimenting the person who's used their talent to the best of their ability. And you're, you're really downplaying somebody or down, you know, putting down somebody who's, who hasn't, who wasted their ability. So, you know, if you look at it, you say, what are my talents and abilities? Let's go with those. Let's, 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 let's be more successful. Then you get into the nitty-gritty of the work. Effort. You got to put out effort. You got to be prepared. You got to be intense. So those are the next three. Uh, effort, preparedness, intensity. And I tell a lot of stories about those different things that I've seen in, in, in my life and I've researched and spent time with. The next one is um, experiences. So, you know, talking to a Parkinson's person, um, put out the effort to to do whatever you need to do. Um, be prepared and be intense. Um, and then experiences. And there are life experiences, Parkinson's being an unintended life experience of mine, that you need to learn from. You need to, um, you know, in order to exercise judgment, you need to, to have experiences. Uh, adapt. Adaptability needs experiences. But you, So you have variety, and I'll call them stretch experiences. To have lots of different experiences. Have some stretch experiences. And then you'll deal with life experiences as they, as they come along. They're unintended. Then contacts and resources. It's real important to spend the time to develop a great uh, network, I guess they call it now. Contacts and resources. And that's something that's critical in Parkinson's. Figure out what support groups you want to go to, what doctors you want to go to, you know, what organizations you want to get involved with. That's what you need to do to be successful. Then comes uh, awareness. And awareness is, is something that you sometimes can't teach people, but you, you have to learn by yourself. That's where you continually question what is and see beyond what's apparent. Um, and that takes a lot, it takes a lot out of a person um, to be, be as aware as they can be. See, you know, see, continually question what is, 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 is something that I think people could do more of than just accept. Um, and then comes anticipation, uh, trusting your instincts. They wrote the book Blink, Malcolm um, Gladwell, I think his name is, wrote the book Blink, where it's your first impression. Once you've got the experiences, once you've developed the awareness, once you've put in the effort and everything else, you need to trust your instincts. 
And, you know, I, I've, I feel as though the San Francisco Giants manager was right on in all of the decisions he made during the World Series and, and the playoffs. And that was trusting his instincts. He put in the time and effort. He, he, he you know, did what he needed to do. And he, he could trust his instincts. Um, the next couple ones are attitude. That's pretty obvious from my whole, whole discussion on this radio show. Um, in, uh, integrity. Integrity. Accountability. Uncompromising integrity. Um, basically, if you wouldn't put it on the front page of the paper, don't do it. You know, hold yourself to a higher standard. And then finally, faith. You know, have faith in, in yourself, have faith in others, and have faith in a higher power. And, you know, that sums up the 12 steps, and you can see how they kind of flow together and, you know, bring you to a higher level. That's a beautiful list. I've written them all down. <laughs> so now all I need to do is to make sure I've got all those steps lined up, and I'll be sure to be well, The best successful. way to do this is when I come out with a book is to uh, – is to uh, read the stories because they bring it they bring it home. When you tell a story, it brings um, so, brings home the point. Right. And they're not just words now, on paper. You, you've got the um, the DVDs and the other materials uh, that are available for people. They can get information about those by going to your website. Is that correct? The Inspiring right. Esquire dot com. It's funny how I came up with that inspiring Esquire. But yes, that's the way you would get it. I, I always remember the Frugal Gourmet. And I always oh, thought that, that was a kind of an interesting title for somebody. So I was I was racking my brain and walking around. And I remember the street I was crossing, at the exact moment I said, the ex- inspiring Esquire. That's it. I'm a lawyer. I'm trying to be inspiring. It tells it all. It kind of flows. It's a little musical. The inspiring Esquire. So that's where I went with that. I haven't gotten as, as warm a reaction from, from people that I know as as I get from myself on that. But <laughs> well, I, like I think it. it's cool. I think it's cool. I do too. Inspiring Esquire. My kids give me yeah. a lot of grief about it. <laughs> If people want to get uh, details on your talks that you'll be giving uh, in Ontario and Houston, Alabama, and Louisville, Kentucky, they can get information from your website. Is that right? That's correct. There, there's some great. It's this, uh, there's a map, you know, topics on the right side, and it, it talks about speaker schedule. I'm putting those up. I put up things on a daily basis. I like to put information in there. Uh, everything I do. I, I try to stay on top of my my um, website, the Inspiring Esquire. I just did a um, I have a sample, an eight minute sample and a ten minute sample of my my reclaiming positive perspective. I just looked at the, the proof re- proofed the the uh, the ten minute sample tonight, and we we're going to put that on YouTube, and then it'll be on my website. Uh, if you want to see YouTube, uh, I'm John Bauman Law, but more it's every one of my YouTubes is on my website as well. So it's a one stop shop. It's really where you need to go. So that's the www dot the T H E inspiring I N S P I R I N G Esquire E S Q U I R E dot com. Do you think and, the listeners know that sorry? I just want to make sure to clarify that, the 
the email that need people if they want like to be right. able to email you, especially for uh, speaking requests. Uh, would you like to repeat that address? John, J-O-H-N, Bauman, B as in boy, A-U-M-A-N-N. That's two N's at the end of the name. E-S-Q, which is the short for Esquire. So it's J-O-H-N-B-A-U-M-A-N-N-E-S-Q at yahoo.com. Um, I don't I don't know if most people know that one of the ways that you to, that you can address a lawyer is Esquire. It probably, I looked it up. It came from England. It was it was a term of endearment for for barristers, um, but it seemed to to flow pretty well as opposed to the inspiring lawyer and the inspiring attorney. I liked inspiring Esquire. Right, which is something you've had many years of experience doing. I loved I loved the law. I love practicing law. Um, I I love yeah, when I was younger. I can still remember in basically tenth grade, eleventh grade, watching courtroom shows and and everything. You know, whenever there was unfairness, whether it was my ch- sister or brother was being punished unfairly, or my parents were being treated unfairly by their jobs, or kids in school were being treated unfairly. I I wasn't the biggest kid, so I couldn't bully anyone, but I I was pretty sharp with the tongue, and I would um, stand up for people, and I basically said, you know, I want to I want to right wrongs, I want justice, I want to do that sort of thing. So I've loved practicing law. Um, the by far the most um, pr- proud moment in my life was the first day I arrived in Cornell Law School campus. I know you went to Cornell in the MBA uh-huh, program. Right, right. When I walked on and saw the ivy, ivy-covered buildings, and the buildings that had been there for a long, long time, and the people have been through there, and the students that, I was in awe. For three years, every single day, I lived in the moment. I was in awe. I wasn't overwhelmed. I wasn't. I didn't feel like I would. Um, I didn't. Wasn't worthy of being there, but. I definitely recognize the the magnitude of of my of my being there, and I guess the second proudest day was when the president of University of Massachusetts, where I went to undergraduate, uh, contacted me and wanted to take me for breakfast in Louisville, Kentucky, and asked me to come back to the campus and speak to the MBA program, uh, to, oh. to do two hour hour and fifteen minute lectures for two different classes. And then do a pre-law question and answer that 250 students showed up for, and it was just to be back on campus 12, 15 years later, and um, you know be welcomed like a um, dignitary was just tremendous. Um, they was both of those moments were extremely proud for me. Uh, that does sound quite delightful indeed. Cornell is about magical. Yeah. <laughs> I talk about motivation. Let me tell you about motivation. I'm in Boston, and I get a call from, I was going to start BC in two days, BC Law School, I guess three days. It was a Friday. And I get a call, and the person says, this is Cornell Law School. And I said, which one of my friends is pulling a joke on me here? And the woman said, no, no, this really is Cornell Law School. You remember you were on the waiting list. You put, you sent in a postcard after you, after we waitlisted you. And I said, yeah, I kind of remember that. She said, well, we have one spot left. Oh, wow. 
And I said, hmm, well, all right, give me the details. When does it start? Monday. You mean this Monday? Yeah, three days. <laughs> okay. Uh, where will I live? Well, there's, we have a dorm, but there's no room. It's full. So you got to find your own place. Okay. I said, how long do I have to decide? They said, this phone call. <laughs> I said, really? You're telling me this phone call? They said, that's right. I can't even call my dad and ask him if he can pick me up. I don't have a car. She said, you got to really decide now because we got the next name on the list. I said, I accept. I'll be there. So I ran around. I got BC to, to unroll me. I got my money back and got out of my apartment. My dad picked me up. I got there. I found a place to live. Et cetera, et cetera. So that Monday when we started school, I went and saw the dean of admissions. Anne Lukenbeal was her name. Wonderful woman. And I walked in and I said to her, I'm honored that you've invited me to attend this fine Ivy League institution. But I want you to know that you've motivated me greatly. Uh, I, I mean, people are motivated by many things. They're motivated by money. But this isn't about money. They're motivated by uh, other emotions. Uh, and I'm angry. <laughs> I'm not at you. Um, I'm a little bit insulted that I was the last one admitted. And she tried to explain that, you know, mission policy. And I said, look, it doesn't matter. You've motivated me. I'm going to use this motivation to graduate in the top 25% of this class. She said, John, don't make that your goal. Everyone graduates with a great... I said, I don't want to hear that. I'm going to be in the top 25%. Not to prove to you, but to prove to me. So at the at the introductory class, um, they had a big... Um, they had a big... In the auditorium, a big ceremony. That later that day, she got up to speak and she said, "I want you. To, I want you to. I just had a discussion with a student, and I think I want to discuss that a little bit. This group of 165 people have been in the top two percent of everything you've always done in your life. Well, half of you will be in the bottom half of your class. It's a statistical certainty. Get get used to it. Don't get don't get exercised about it. Relax." Just you're, you're in the you're in the best of the best. Even if you're in the bottom half of the class, you still got a great education and you'll get a great job. So the, the, the kicker of the story is, I just made the top twenty-five percent. Oh yeah, I was thinking. I just just made it <laughs> at the end. So that was uh, that was my first. You know, without knowing the twelve steps. You know, I, I absolutely used those 12 steps, and that's one of the ways that I came that it came to me. Oh, uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, that all fell together. Experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a absolutely remarkable story. So what would you suggest to people who have the symptoms of Parkinson's about how they can motivate themselves to feel better and get relief from their symptoms? Well, you've got to go see your doctor and do what your doctor says because um, when, I have, when I'm not taking my medicine, I have my off periods, and uh, it's not a pleasant thing for my, to, be, to be around myself or to be around, have other people around me. So, you know, it's not fair to yourself or to others to not take your medication. Um, force yourself to exercise. Force yourself to eat right. Force yourself to... to um, to do whatever sort of stretching that you need to do, um, and you know, stay on, stay informed, and do whatever 
um, seems to work. And, you know, live life to the fullest. You know, like I, I say to people related to my daughter, uh, my son once asked me, and I didn't talk much about my son. He's at University of Kentucky. I'm proud of him. Um, and, you know, he's a wonderful, wonderful young man. But he once asked me, what's the worst thing that ever happened in your life? And I said to him, hmm, let me think about that. And he said, Dad, why don't you just answer a question once in a while? I said, I'll answer your question, but I'll answer it tomorrow. Let me think about it. And I came back and I said, Joe, nothing. He said, Dad, you, you can't get out of it that easy. I asked you what worst thing that happened. Something has to be the worst. I said, well, Joe, she didn't die. Your sister didn't die. I can picture when she was in a neonatal ICU for 60 days. Every day I went over there, spent some time with her. As I, When I got in the car, I bawled, wailed uncontrollably because I envisioned her funeral. I envisioned putting her in the ground. I envisioned her, her dying. When that, that would be the worst thing in the world, it didn't happen. So nothing is the worst thing in the world. And when I ask people different that question many times. I've asked many people that, and people will say, my divorce. I said, wait a second here, you're remarried. You've got a wonderful daughter that wouldn't be in existence today. Was it the best thing or the worst thing that happened in your life? You know, Parkinson's feels like the worst thing that ever happened in your life. But realize the fact that you're not dead. Caregivers, family caregivers, the person's still around. Cherish the moment. Feel 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 what it's like to be alive. Do the things that you've never done before. Make a difference. Uh, give back to society. Have a legacy. Just do all that to um, to you know make bring meaning to it. Scott, you know, the way I put it is this way. You know why God g- gave me Parkinson's? Why? Because. Because I could handle it. Uh, he knew I could handle it. If you got Parkinson's, God knew somehow you could handle it. So realize, don't don't say, why, God, did this happen to me? There's a reason for it. Everything happens for the best. And that's an important phrase in my life. Everything happens for the best. You just need to find out why it's the best. What What learnings you brought, what information you have. Uh, what, how you can affect other people's lives? Make, you know, be be as kind as you can and be a good friend. We only have uh, a minute or so left. Is there anything else that you want to be sure and say that you haven't had a chance to say? Um, not really. I think I am very. Uh, I think your questions were insightful, and they they they. They kept the flow going. Uh, I think you're an excellent interviewer, and I hope that the show <laughs> continues you. for quite some time. Uh, I think you bring bring more value. I'm going to start listening to it uh, until you contact me. I didn't know about the show, but I'll, I will. I guarantee I'll be listening to it. Because, oh, great! Um, yeah, think, you might want to be sure to dip into some of the archives too. There's some wonderful guests that I've had on over the last year and a half who've had. Uh, Really interesting shows. So great. Yeah, well, you can for everybody listening. You can, 
Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, everybody who comes on has exactly what you talk about, is that positive attitude, that positive perspective, and uh, that's why they're able to uh, be able to find ways to get incredible relief from their symptoms. What I'm doing now is, besides doing talks at different places, is I'm contacting health care providers, senior living, assisted living, everything that has anything to do with health care, and I want to go around to their to their supervisors, to their residents, and bring my message of positive thinking, so that um, you know they can you know improve their ability to care give, to be someone's best last best friend, and uh, that's what I'm hoping that um, these talks bring me. Uh, I'd love to get involved in the hospital chain with uh, um, any sort of medical related issues. To, to basically give a shot in the arm to the to the caregivers out there in small groups do workshops you know get the have them have it rub off by just contact with me um, and hopefully get some of the tangible takeaways that I've given my message but um, you know I sound a little bit desperate in a sense I am I I um, have bills to pay and it's important that I that I get um, get some sort of a um, connection with healthcare providers that that need me to go around to their places, go on tour, go around to their hospitals, their clinics, whatever, and you know do something beneficial for your employees. This is a gift that you can give your employees. And so it will happen. John Bowman, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Appreciate you asking me. I'm honored. So my guest has been John Bowman, attorney and professional inspirational speaker. To be able to contact him, you can visit his website, which is theinspiringesquire.com. This is Robert Rogers, and you've connected with Parkinson's Recovery, and that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that you are on the road to recovery by virtue of the fact you're listening to this program. We look forward to connecting with you next week at the same time, the new time, which is 3 p.m. Wednesdays, East uh, uh, Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a wonderful week. We look forward to connecting with you next Wednesday. Goodbye.